This is the Monday, September 5th, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, our time machine turns team bus as we head back not so far into history, only to the late 80s and early 90s when your humble host was on the football field, at least the pregame and halftime. For my high school marching band in Cresco, New Jersey, and as a member of the Rutgers University Marching Scarlet Knights, the pride of New Jersey. Rutgers won the very first football game in 1869, which is why Piscataway, New Jersey, lays claim to the title, the birthplace of college football. But as you know from my chat with John J. Miller, author of The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football, that game that Rutgers and Princeton played just a few years after the end of the Civil War much more closely resembled rugby, with no quarterback or receivers. So therefore, no passing game. So here on the History Authors Show, we've covered the period between that first game and Theodore Roosevelt's reinvention. But how did we get from TR's reinvented game to Super Bowl 50 and the kickoff of the 2016 regular season, the Sunday after uploading this episode? Well, every now and then, somebody creates a style that smashes the norms and makes everything that came before obsolete. The old order is never happy to be upstaged, of course. They don't like to change. And football's grand, high-exalted mystic rulers were no fans of coaches Hal Mummy and Mike Leach, whose innovations transformed the aerial attack from an intermittent feature of football games, something of a novelty or a gimmick, to its primary focus. As we'll hear, these teams, the Mummy-Leach teams, were literally not playing the same game everyone else was. And yet now, in 2016, everybody's playing their game. Our guest is New York Times best-selling author and Pulitzer Prize finalist Sam Gwynn, author of The Perfect Pass, American Genius, and the Reinvention of Football. You may have heard our History in Five Friday segment on Sam Gwynn's previous book, Rebel Yell, The Violence, Passion, and Redemption of Stonewall Jackson, or Red Empire of the Summer Moon which recounts the rise and fall of the Comanche. You can find Sam Gwynn online at scgwynn.com or by following SC Gwynn on Twitter. That's G-W-Y-N-N-E. Okay, now that we've had our pregame pep talk, let's go long and catch the perfect pass. I'm joined on the line by Sam Gwynn. The cover of the book we're talking about today says S.C. Gwynn, that's the pen name, and the book is 
The Perfect Pass, American Genius and the Reinvention of Football. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with the History Author Show today. Well, it's great to be with you, Dean. Thanks for having me. I picked up this book and I said, history was happening right under my nose here just what, 20, 30 years ago, and I didn't know it. Probably you could say it was happening under my feet because I was in a couple of marching bands and the game was changing <laughs> on the other side. Those of us in the band, we consider the football that to be our intro and, and outro there around halftime. But anyway, in 2015, ESPN Magazine called Hal Mummy, quote, the single most influential football coach in the last quarter century, unquote. So as a fan of the game, why had I not heard his name until I picked up the perfect pass? Well, that's a good question. That's the first thing everybody wants to know about Hal. I mean, Hal invented essentially the game, as ESPN says, essentially the game that you are seeing now, particularly the college game, was largely invented by Hal, not exclusively by him, but he had a lot to do with it. So the question is, why isn't he coaching the Green Bay Packers? <laughs> it was interesting because he started with this crazy offense where, you know, they threw the ball 60 or 70 times a game and they went for it on fourth down. They did all these things that we can talk about later. But this kind of explosive video game-like passing offense that he introduced in the late 80s at the college level at Iowa Wesleyan College, a school with 400 kids. So he takes it there, lights up the, uh, the D3 NAIA world, then he takes it to Valdosta State, another college you've never heard of, Division II in Georgia, lights it up, beats like much bigger, batter schools like Central Florida. And then he's rewarded with that by the job as head coach at Kentucky, and then he lights up the SEC in the late 90s. He beats LSU. He beats Alabama, which Kentucky, of course, never did. And he has a quarterback named Tim Couch, who becomes the NFL's number one draft choice. So, so here we are in the late 90s. He has brought video game offense to the SEC where people said you could not possibly do this. You cannot pass like this. It won't work. He's done it. He's done it brilliantly. And then he runs into this absolutely terrible killer recruiting scandal at Kentucky. And it takes him down. And unfortunately, it really wasn't Hal's fault. Hal was later exonerated. But, you know, sports scandals. But one of his coaches was out there, you know, cash payments to high school coaches. It, it was not pretty. You know, football is full of coaches who go from the top to the bottom very quickly, as you know. And Hal kind of has struggled coming back after kind of the, the late 90s. Meanwhile, his little assistant there, his little sorcerer's apprentice, Mike Leach, right at that time was taking the job as offensive coordinator at Oklahoma and lighting up the world with the same offense. So Leach you've heard of. Mummy, you haven't, although it was Mummy's offense, and again, Leach was his assistant, although Leach had a lot to do with the development of it. The thing is, even as these two coaches are proving that the system works and that it's an exciting game, nobody wants it. And I'm reading it and saying, why? It seems so obvious. The game is so exciting. What's greater than seeing somebody throw and catch a ball, which is what people who deride football often say. They say, well, it's just a bunch of guys throwing and catching a ball. Now, they used to say it's just a bunch of guys smashing into each other. So whether they, whether they want it or not, they've also been changed in what they're saying is not good. And until you try to throw a spot, you probably would think it wasn't that big a deal, much less to catch one. So I wonder if you think it's fair to say that this is a rare case of success, not failure being the orphan, because they keep showing that this works, that it's exciting, that it's a better game, and yet nobody wants it. Well, it's not only a curious part of their career that they keep succeeding. They just light up the world again at Division Three level, which is hardly uh, you know to be confused with Michigan State and uh, LSU. 
but they light up the world there. And everybody says, yeah, yeah, well, you're in the middle of nowhere at some stupid conference that nobody cares about. Then he goes to Division Two, and they said, there's no way at NCAA Division Two you could ever do this. And then they set every single national record in Division Two. And then they say, oh, yeah, but now you're going to the SEC. And excuse me, but the SEC locked down defenses. There's just no way you could possibly do this at the SEC. And then he does. So he keeps running into this barrier. And what's interesting is it's a miniature version of the sport itself. You went to the school that played against my school in the 1869 game, yep. Rutgers against Princeton. And the game was all running. It was all, all took place in a very narrow space at the line of scrimmage, this giant bloody scrum where people got killed and had their eyes gouged out and everything. And finally, they legalized the forward pass in 1906, but nobody wanted it. Most of the sport was against it. It was only done with the help from Teddy Roosevelt in order to stop the deaths at the line of scrimmage. They thought it would open it up. And then in 1913, very famously, Gus Dore throws this pass to Newt Rockney to beat Army, you know, the Notre Dame Army game. And you think, well, now the pass is going to take off. The problem was football is so deeply conservative, but passing and certainly passing a lot was always seen as something kind of feminine a little kind of a girly thing that, you know, was going to wreck the morals of America. In fact, there's a lot of literature on this, people saying it would actually wreck the morals of America to pass the ball. <laughs> and this continues. So even though you've got these little explosions like Sammy Ball in the 30s and the Dutch Meyer spread, you know, and like Norm Van Brocklin and the Rams in the 50s and Benny Friedman, the great Jewish quarterback at Michigan in the, in the 20s, each time there's a little flowering and then it just goes away because football wants to go back to what it really wants to do, which is a halfback toss. And it's interesting because if you look at, like, say, the book Moneyball, which everybody's familiar with, baseball is the same way. So here we have this guy, Bill James, who comes along and should revolutionize the game of baseball. He proves that the metrics that they're using are wrong. But it's not until this guy finally writes his book in 2005 or three or whenever it was, you know, Michael Lewis writes the book that the sport begins to change. So you have these deeply, deeply conservative, in the case of baseball, it was hung up on its own way of measuring how success took place. And in football, it was basically just wanted to go back to being a ground game. Always. 1977, the dead ball here in the NFL, they finally just weren't throwing it anymore. They weren't scoring any more points. And the NFL said, okay, we're going to change the entire way we block and the entire way defensive backs can hit receivers. You were talking about the dead ball era, but I think you said the NFL. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that you didn't mean Major League Baseball. I should qualify that because Babe Ruth was the one who brought Major Leagues out of the dead ball era in baseball. It was just called that. It was just a word they used to designate how bad things had gotten in the mid-70s and how few points were being scored, how few passes thrown, yardage was down. Everything was going back to its old origins. Remember, you used to have to grab your jersey to block, and then they said, no, you can push outward with your hands which revolutionized the game of football, that the offensive blockers could do that. All oh, the purists hated it. They thought it was terrible. And the other thing they said is that the defensive back could only bump you once in the first five yards and then couldn't bump you after that, the bump rule. These were both done in 77 by the NFL at the depths of the dead ball era. I think that the rules went into effect in 78 they hadn't scored so few points since 1940. It was ridiculous. It was funny because it was a replay of what Roosevelt did. Roosevelt tried to save the game with a pass, and the NFL was facing declining interest, saving the game again with a pass. So, same deal. 
Anyway, that was a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, all good because you don't think of it as having just been a novelty almost. Even a guy like Jerry Rice, you write in the perfect pass that this was an amazing player, but well, you wouldn't possibly try to teach somebody that. You're lucky if you got a player like that, but then let's go back to really playing football. And that's what really comes across here is this idea that it's a novelty and that we stuck so long with the classic aspect of the game or the original aspect, which is great. You'd think some people who love history, right? But that doesn't mean that you're not going to innovate. And we talked to John J. Miller about how Theodore Roosevelt saved football. And it struck me that it took so long to get that violence out of the game, that idea that, you know, you had to run into the line. Elliot, the president of Harvard said, don't even look for a hole because that's ungentlemanly. Don't be sneaky. Just hit right into the other guy. Exactly. It was unmasculine to do that. Yeah. Or to have someone run out like to the left. That was unmasculine, yeah. which is strange to think about. Yeah, it takes 50 years or 60 years or what have you for that really to get ingrained from that first football game that Princeton and Rutgers played in. And since you went to Princeton, I won't tell people who won, but <laughs> Rut- Rutgers, it's kind of it's kind of the one thing that we really, really have great when we talk about football. So we talk about that first game a lot. But then after TR and after this revolution in football to make it safer, things like let's have a neutral zone, protecting the quarterback and setting some rules to preserve the game, keep the good things, keep the masculinity, because as you point out in the perfect past, we hadn't fought a war in so many years that people started to think we need those masculine qualities, and football was one way, right down to the people dying literally on the field. So, okay, the game reforms, but then it just stops right there. It stops after the TR Reformation almost, and this major change doesn't come until our era. Yes, our lifetime, yes. It's amazing, and yet nobody hears about it. And the headline of Chapter 7 in The Perfect Pass, you describe Iowa Wesleyan College as perhaps the worst team in America. (laughs) Right, that's the only place that would hire somebody like Hal Mummy (laughs) who wanted to throw the ball all the time and open up the game. You know, and, and as you pointed out earlier correctly, when there was an explosion of passing offense, like Jerry Rice at Mississippi Valley State, people just said, come on, you can't duplicate this. You, you know, okay, fine, he's the greatest player of all time. Or Sammy Baugh, correctly, truly, possibly the greatest player of all time. They said, you know, you'd have to find a quarterback who was that good, and, and they, there was this kind of feeling. So the 60s, it reverts right back. Think of the Lombardi sweep. That's your image for the 60s. Think of a gunslinger like Kenny Stabler, you know, who you think is throwing the ball all the time. He's not. He's throwing the ball 18 times a game, completing 12 of them. I mean, you know, it's, it's not the world that you think it is. It's just run-dominated football. And finally, in the middle of the 70s, it goes right back to its old roots. Now there are fewer points scored since the 1940s, fewer passes thrown since the early 50s. They're going right back to their bloody scrum at the line of scrimmage. In 1977, which is when all of this stuff starts. And the thing, the reason you don't, well, people, you did notice it in some way, and I noticed it a little bit, but we just didn't believe it. We saw offenses like the run and shoot out of Houston that was wide open passing attack if there ever was one. People did see the air raid. But everybody thought, as you said earlier, it's a novelty, it's a gimmick, it isn't really the real game, it's impossible to coach. And not only that, it's very high risk to coach. If you come in as a coach and you say you're going to throw the ball 50 times a game, I mean, you you just lost your job, basically. (laughs) So these great 
there's a few of them. Only a, really, I say, five or six masters of the forward pass ever that came out of that generation. But, so think of like the 80s is when it starts. That's when this revolution starts happening, and it accelerates in the 2000s. But even in the 2000s, when Mike Leach was lighting up the world with his offenses at Texas Tech, and he really was, people had no idea what he was doing. He was running exactly the system that I'm writing about. They called it the system. They said it's a system. It's just a system. You know, and the proof that it's a system is that his quarterbacks never succeed in the NFL. And I was sitting there going, wait a second, if it's a system where every year his quarterback, including fifth-year seniors who've never played, sets the NCAA record for passing, that's a pretty good system. Maybe I want that system. Anyway, it really did happen gradually. The media didn't note it happening. They said the West Coast offense was doing some interesting things. There was certainly plenty of press on that. But anyway, yeah, it just kind of happened suddenly around 2010-11. In 1991, which is the year that I say that Hal really invented the full-scale, spread, wide-open, open-throttle, crazy-passing offense that we now see. Before 1991, only five NCAA Division I quarterbacks had ever thrown for more than 10,000 yards in their college careers. That was considered like the four-minute mile. Since then, 90 more have done it. (laughs) Think of that. Five in the history of football... (laughs) Since 91, 90 have done it. The game has changed so radically because of this guy, and it really didn't happen. The big changes, which then geometrically jumped, were the, I would argue, starting with Leach's golden years at Tech in the early 2000s. And it really is his strategy, his plan, what he lays out. It's not that he has some gifted once-in-a-generation quarterback. You were just saying, well, they said, well, these guys can't play in the NFL. But he just picks up these people, or these players, rather, that go to Iowa Wesleyan. These are not guys that are being recruited by Penn State or being recruited by Michigan. Or, but, right. you know, these are just players that, hey, he wants to give a chance. So what kind of players does he assemble? And I'm thinking of one in particular, you have a funny story in The Perfect Pass, Curtis McDorman, who fights, <laughs> fights a farmer's house and loses. So, As you correctly <laughs> surmised, one of the brilliant things, in fact, possibly the single most brilliant thing about the air raid offense is you can teach it to high school kids, any high school kids. It is not complex. He doesn't even have a playbook. It's super simple. Quarterback has to have certain abilities, but he does not have to have a strong arm or be fast or big. That's all anybody cares about at University of Texas, you know, strong arm, fast, big, period. They don't care about anything else. Care about accuracy, ability to read the field, genuine intelligence, field intelligence. The place where Hal Mummy, the guy we're talking about here, the coach, is going to unleash all these ideas that he's finally got together is Iowa Wesleyan in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. There's 440 kids that go there, middle of nowhere, 250 miles west of Chicago, very, very cold in the wintertime. And when he arrives, everyone on the team has quit from the year before since they were just absolutely 0-10 and blown out by everybody. So Hal has a couple of months to put together his first team, literally, and and he's sitting there in Iowa, and no one in Iowa will play for him because they know how bad the team is. So he basically goes to Texas, which is where he's from, and gets a lot of the team. And he puts together this team that initially he has to take whoever he can get, people who could play Division One who are really good to, like, you know, felons. <laughs> and very few Division One players 
two of these Texas players, the only reason they came there was to like go out and poach, poach deer. They weren't really interested in playing football. And one of his guys was this absolutely gigantic, like enormous tackle named Curtis McDormand, who just kind of got caught up in the net and you could see why they wanted him. He was so big, but he fought with everybody. He fought all the time and they couldn't stop him from fighting. And he fought with the other team. And one night he put his fist through somebody's wall and couldn't get it out. And Hal had to go <laughs> find him. So here we are in white bread, Iowa. Eventually, they have a bunch of black kids, not only from Texas, but from Chicago, that they never had at this school before. They have Polynesians, because one of Hal's coaches is Polynesian. They have rural kids. They have urban kids. They have Polynesian kids. They have black kids. He completely changes the nature of this little tiny school, all the while building this team that eventually destroys teams from schools that have 20 times the number of students, 20 or 30 times the number of students they have. So it's a very exciting little tale. You know, because up in the Midwest, there are all these kind of little Christian-affiliated colleges. There's zillions of them. Each town seems to have one, and they play each other in this ultra-pure kind of old-fashioned version of the sport. Listeners who've watched the movie The Thin Gray Line may recall that moment that you just mentioned in 1913 when Army uses the forward pass to shock Notre Dame. Right. The idea of the air game not catching on after that, especially when you see even just the reenactment, maybe it's because they didn't have footage back then. Maybe today, if you saw it on TV, people would be clamoring for that. But they don't have that at the time, so nobody really knows. They just go back. I wondered if you'd give us some examples of just how much opposition there is, because I think people who go watch a Tom Brady light it up or Peyton Manning or whoever the new young quarterbacks are that are coming in, Cam Newton now in Super Bowl 50, those two guys slugging it out. I think it's unbelievable when you read The Perfect Pass to realize just how strict people were against it. Yeah, and it wasn't so much what was being said. It was just the practice itself, the way the game evolved, because passing was considered to be something very dangerous to do. It was considered to be a career killer for a coach. It was considered to be, again, sort of feminine to do it. And as a practical matter, even though, yes, Gus Doray in 1913 threw that 40-yard dart to Newt Rockney against Army, that Army and 10 and Princeton and Harvard and all these guys were the killers, right, who just thought Notre Dame was a bunch of you know, losers from somewhere in the Midwest. And the fact that they didn't take that as a lesson and say, okay, we're going to start throwing the football was a kind of a version of their preference. I mean, they honestly believed that football was something that should be designed by strength within a relatively small space at the line of scrimmage. And it was thought furthermore that passing itself was high risk. And in the old days, they could point to statistics and say, okay, the interception rate in, I can't remember what year it was, in the 30s was 15%. That's pretty high. There was the interception rate, which was one version of it. As the old chestnut had it, people said there are three things that can happen when you throw the ball. Two of them are bad. And that kind of applied. And so this just innate conservatism of the game, coaches wanting to be able to control things, coaches having trouble with the idea that they could coach receivers and quarterbacks to do this. It was astonishing. But again, go back to my analogy to baseball. Sabermetrics was around a long time ago as a way to analyze the performance of some player on the field. Baseball didn't want anything part of it, any part of it. They wanted their old system. They all said, well, you have a bunch of RBIs, he's a good-looking kid, you know, got that live young arm, kind of that kind of analysis, which didn't really mean anything, and yet they were wedded to it. And it's astonishing, I agree with you, that you could see the Los Angeles Rams, for example, in 1949 and 1950 and not think, oh, gosh, that's the future. Let's go. Everybody going to throw the ball. 
it's not. The lesson they took from that was just nothing. There was no lesson. It, <laughs> what, what came out of the incredible Los Angeles Rams offenses that lasted for a few years there in the late 40s and early 50s, while Van Brocklin was part of it, the, on the other end of that is the Lombardi sweep. So no lesson was learned. And they just kept wanting to go back. And I think what it comes down to is individual conservatism of coaches who just didn't believe that that was what the game was supposed to be. And in some ways, what I argue that what Hal came up with was a way of looking at the game that was just entirely different and that the game that Hal taught his people to play rested on an entirely different premise across the board of time, space, what the object of the game was, everything about what he taught completely upended what the average team was doing. And, you know, the thing about it is, is people sort of were throwing the ball. I happen to be looking at some stats from 1984. And you say, hey, here's Nebraska. Well, they were throwing the ball in 1984. Let's see. Per game average, they rushed the ball 58 times, and they threw it 13 times, 407 yards. So, you know, Oklahoma, they ran the ball 60 times per game. They threw it 16 they had 100 yards, 108 yards passing per game. So we're not saying that no one was throwing. They were throwing it, but it was a very old-fashioned idea. You threw it on third and long when you had to. If it wasn't third and long, you didn't throw it. And that was it, period. I was thinking of Deacon Jones as you were talking about the violence in the game, and that's the kind of guy you wanted out there as a player. You know, the head slap and yeah. <laughs> knocking guys out of there. And Butkus. Butkus. Yeah, I mean, these guys. Richie, Huff, Butkus, those were, those were the guys. Yeah. Guy didn't get a nickname Ironhead because he was a really <laughs> elegant passer. Right? He wasn't no. trying to split two defensemen. I mean, that was the thing. This was what the game was. It still had those old rugby roots from that first game. And you write in the perfect past that they thought how mummy's plans were somewhere between crazy and suicidal. As you were talking, there, saying that they didn't see it or that there was no lesson learned. It's almost as if they're not watching the same game as everyone else because these coaches are not playing the same game as everybody else. The no. players aren't playing the same game. No. And at one point, mummy and Lee told a football clinic. This is his first year in Georgia. And by Valdosta State, right? And how, tell me, how many high school coaches show up to learn this great new system? So, so Hal comes in and he's told people, he says, I'm going to throw the ball 70% of the time. We're just going to throw it. We're going to throw it on first down, second down, fourth down. We're going to throw the ball. We're going to spread the field. It's going to be great. He comes into Valdosta. Well, this is the heart of football country. In fact, the winningest high school in the nation is in Valdosta. And so Hal comes into this place. And like most coaches, he, in this case, the summer before his first year, he gives a clinic. He's got a bunch of NFL guys and some good people down there to talk about things. And of course, he wants to do it because he makes connections with local high school coaches who will help him recruit players. Right. Not a single coach showed up. Not one. No one wanted to know how to pass the ball. <laughs> Not, no, no one had any interest in learning this. And versions of this happened everywhere. It was like, no, no, we don't, we're going to lose our jobs if we try this, and, and it's just there's no point. So we're not interested. It's really astounding. And you, one of the things I wanted to pick up on that you said, though, was there, what Hal taught his players was a game that the other team was not playing. And I think it's his greatest brilliance because when it starts in simplicity versus complexity, in his era, which begins in the 70s and kind of rolls forward, what one of the characteristics of it was gigantic playbooks. Remember, it's like the genius of a coach was measured in whether he had a New York phone directory-sized playbook. Right. And the harder it was to learn was a testament to how brilliant that coach was. 
so many plays, so many options on individual plays. Hal had no plays. He had, well, he had plays. He had about five of them. No playbook. Everybody else is running hundreds of plays and variations on the plays, and Hal has no playbook. Two running plays, you know, six at 1.6 or seven pass plays. Leach did the same thing at Tech. Hal invented playing fast. Now, no huddle is something that Johnny Unitas made it famous in the 50s, but up-tempo, playing fast, at two-minute speed for an entire game was invented by Hal Mummy. So the whole idea of time on the field. So you're playing a guy who is playing a game with 62 plays in it in four quarters. Hal is putting 82 to 90 plays. He's putting another quarter and sometimes almost another half. So his games play at a different, literally, relativistic time zone than you are. You know, Hal's team plays with five or six foot splits between its offensive line. The other team are jammed together like a wall. Time of possession, which is considered one of the great measures of like how you win games. Hal doesn't care about it. He thinks it's worthless. doesn't matter. He doesn't care how long he holds the ball. Hal wants to play using the entire field. The other team wants to play in the cramped middle with the butt cut sitting right there to stop you. Hal says, no, no, I'm going to spread it from side to side. I want to use the entire field. It just goes on and on and on. You know, one of Hal's famous plays is that he teaches his kids was that when they're on their one yard line, trapped on their one, and the other team is thinking safety, their idea is they're going to score a touchdown. So the other team sees this tightly bunched thing that's going to be this incredible collision of force and maybe get a safety. Hal's guys are thinking, we're spreading the field. I see an, almost an acre of free grass out there, and we're going to score. And he did very often. I have a chapter called Hal's Theory of Relativity, his guys see the world differently than your guys see it. It's an entirely different game that they're playing, and the opposition never quite caught on to that. That idea of a pamphlet for a playbook is really something when you think back to that era. I'm thinking of all things when Greg Brady knows that the guy that's dating Marsha wants to steal his playbook and he stays up all night reversing the plays and trying to make the guy take the plays out of this fake playbook and get <laughs> fooled. That, that was always a, a thing of honor, right? Oh, I lost the playbook or oh, oh I got to carry this big playbook. Coach just gave me another 500 plays and guys carrying the yeah. playbook around. He does this and the Mummy Leach air raid offense relies on simplicity here and you'd think in a way that that would make it easier for opposing teams to stop, but he doesn't care let them see it. Let them watch all the tape they want and let them see it's the same thing, but they're not going to see it on the same plane of reality, I guess. No, and it was the thing that's the hardest, it's been the hardest for the other teams to figure out because one of the things that Hal figured out how to do was in running these very few plays to essentially, so that the other team not only could see you doing it and could watch your film of your games, but can watch everybody else's film and can watch it for years and years and years, and they still can't stop the play. And that's because Hal figured out a way for his play to look extremely complicated when it is, in fact, incredibly simple. In fact, it's the single most brilliant thing that he did. His guys just see this really easy play. The defense sees like a thousand angry hornets coming at them. <laughs> and I won't go into trying to describe it here, but because I was so desperate to learn myself how you could do that, I have a chapter in my book where I actually call it the one true holy Catholic and apostolic pass. It's a play called Mesh where I actually diagram it out because I said, man, I've got to understand. He ran Mesh once 52 times in one game. Nobody could stop it. Leach's favor was called Four Verticals. And Leach ran this at Tech, well, at least while I was watching here from Austin, Texas in the Big 12. He just ran it all the time. In fact, if you gave him his choice, he would run only this play. 
and the greatest defensive minds in the Big 12 over of a decade could not stop it. So I call the book The Perfect Pass because if you can watch it and study it and know what they're doing and not be able to stop it, well, there's something incredibly unusual about that. So it was kind of why I wrote the book. I had done a profile of Michael Leach for a magazine, and it was a fun profile to do and everything, but I came away thinking, boy, I still don't get the system. I don't get how he does it. But if there's something that a coach would take away from this book, it would be simplicity versus complexity. One, how systems are incredibly simple. So simple that his guys can do zillions of reps on the few plays that they do. Meanwhile, your guys can only do one rep of the New York Times level playbook. So these guys can do their plays much better than you can do your plays. So on some level, it's just out executing the opposition. Everybody in the Big 12, when I was watching Leach down here, they all believed Leach had some voodoo kind of gigantic playbook, some magic going on. They didn't realize they were just being beaten on every single play by guys who understood their play better than your guys understood how to stop it. It was a remarkable achievement, really, in a lot of ways. In many ways, it's about ideas, which nothing in football is about ideas. This offense is about ideas, about having fun, about relaxing, about moving in space. (laughs) It's a little bit, that all sounds kind of of feminine and kind of, you know, prissy, doesn't it? (laughs) Hey, you beat the crap out of everybody with it, but hey, you know, so. Yeah, people in the stands love it. So uh, that's also (laughs) part of it. People use feminizes and epithets sometimes, and clearly they were in this case, but there's a reason why there's now a pink (laughs) month every October in the NFL. And there's a reason why they want to get more women to watch the game. I think that brute violence is probably more like the boxing breakdown where people don't want to watch that product. Maybe they don't want to see so much violence. So that's probably something that did also help grow the game, wouldn't you think? Yeah. To me, what is the national sport? There's no question that it's football. Football is going like gangbusters. I would argue that one of the main reasons it is is because Hal changed the game to the extent that, you know, you had, let's take a guy like Des Bryant for the Cowboys. 30 years ago, he wasn't playing football, you know. It attracted a new quality person. It attracted somebody who was 6'5", 220, and could run a 440. It attracted these unbelievable speed and all this throwing and I mean, I don't know, watch, especially college football today, it's really exciting. It's just balls going, balls going everywhere in the air, and, and you never know what's going to happen. And somebody could, this happens all the time, they're down by 14 points with three minutes and they win. You can't do that running the ball, you know. So passing has made this game interesting to people who might not otherwise be interested in it, including women, I think. I mean, my daughter, is, she loves these passing games, and... Part of what's happened is the incredible attraction of football right now and the incredible success. You can't measure it, but I mean, I think it has to do with throwing the ball. Your daughter gave you the title. Yeah, she did. <laughs> That's our idea, yeah. I was going to call it something like air. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what to call it, but she said, I said, you know, that's what it's about. It's about if you can throw something and the opposition knows what it is, but they still can't stop it, well, that's a perfect pass. So. Think about it. Her title was simplicity. So I've proved what you were just saying. Sometimes the simple, yeah, the simple descriptive term, sometimes the best one. Yes. My guest is Sam Gwynn, author of The Perfect Pass, American Genius and the Reinvention of Football. You can find him online at scgwynn.com. That last name is G-W-Y-N-N-E. You can also follow him on Twitter at scgwynn. Kirkus Reviews writes, quote, It is undeniable that the air raid, the fast passing game, and the frequency of the forward pass 
are now imprinted on football, especially as Gwynn notes on the college level, though also in the NFL. That makes his subtitle all the more fitting for undeniably the two coaches changed the game and brought glory to their institutions. A superb treat for all Gridiron fans, unquote. Now, they say there for all Gridiron fans, but not only Gridiron fans. I wanted to impress that upon people. You talked about some diagrams in the book just to illustrate what's happening there. But your passion that people are hearing in your voice and hopefully in my voice, I think that carries over to anybody who just loves to see something done well. We don't hear often the term American genius anymore as much as maybe we used to, where we like to think of that as something that's uniquely American, at least to strive for, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of excellence. When somebody picks up the book and they see the cover, they do see a receiver trying to bring in that long pass. And so that's going to attract the cheeseheads. It's going to attract the face painters. It's going to attract the fans. But I wanted to give you a chance to make your pitch to that listener who maybe they've never sat in the stands. Maybe they do think of the game as just being a bunch of grown men playing with balls that are millionaires, all the derisive things maybe people say. They just don't care for it. So Address them directly. Why should they pick up a copy of The Perfect Pass? Or maybe why should a football fan pick it up for their partner who rolls their eyes, you know, the football widow every Sunday kind of person that (laughs) doesn't want to watch the game at all? Why should they pick up The Perfect Pass? Well, I think that at its very base, this is a story about a guy who revolutionized the game, you know, about a guy who had been a losing coach for his first 14 years, and then he ends up at the worst school in the nation in Iowa, and he somehow perseveres. He then gets fired, and no one will hire him, and then he comes on to this school where they won't come to his clinics, and it's against great adversity that he revolutionizes the game, and he does it you know, it isn't through X's and O's. It isn't because he says, okay, the guard goes here and the tackle tackle. You know, that isn't it. It's about bigger ideas. As people who read the book will see, it's about this relativistic universe. He has designed a game that is not the game that anyone else is playing. And it goes against everything that's been done. He's not only fighting against all of the innate conservatism of his teams in his life and in his time, he's also fighting against this native conservatism that goes all the way back to Walter Camp in the 19th century. So I would say it's about the little guy who could, the little team that could, the little school that could. This Iowa Wesleyan, you know, in the Northeast Missouri game in 1991, the whole damn game of football changes in August 31, 1991. Unremarked, unnoted by anybody. (laughs) There it is where he's playing this crazy fast game, throwing the ball 70, 80 times. Nobody's ever done those things before. I think it's fun to look at, in essence, a technological innovator, who I see him as that way. It's sports technology, and he has a better system than you do. Anyway, and I think that that kind of thing, you can't be someone who doesn't know what a football is and read. I don't think those people will want to read the book. But I think if you have a casual passing knowledge of the game, you, you know, you can embrace ideas like that, I think. I myself am not, I'm not a crazy hardcore football fan. I am a football fan, but I, I don't live my life according to it. But, you know, I kind of wrote it for people like me who are, really want to know how it works. Anyway, I guess that's a bad elevator pitch, but it's a, that's my <laughs> Well, tip. it's a fun book, and you're passionate about it. That's the word for it. Just to see somebody that's excellent. Why do we watch the Olympics? I mean, let's face it. We're not going out, most of us, seeking out archery, right? Probably very few people watch archery except for the Olympics. But when you see these athletes who are the best they can be, it's compelling, even if you never watch archery again the other four years right. you know, in between Olympics. So it's fun to see an underdog go. And not that these guys win every game. I mean, Mummy and Leech, for example, 
lose the first two games of the 1990 season by a combined score of 95 to 6. But but they also have some comebacks in part because of these plays. And as I was watching them, these other coaches in your book try to stop him, I was thinking of this Madden glitch in Madden football, maybe the very first Madden football 20 years ago. A cousin of mine from here in New Jersey and I went down to visit our other cousin in Florida. And we were playing the game. And my cousin from up here in New Jersey played in Tenafly High School football, and he loved the game. He really did live football. His dad lived and played football in Fort Lee. My dad's brother, they loved football. My other cousin and I didn't really care for it that much. We, I was in the marching man, okay, but we weren't fanatics. Anyway, there was a little glitch in Madden football that if you – fake punted, say on first or second down, there was no block for it on the other team because what kind of crazy person would, there's no reason to, but they would give you the option of fake punt. And man, you could air it out and go all the way down for a touchdown. And we were just killing my cousin, you know, you know here is this big football guy, but it was a different way. I was playing it as, you know, looking at the computer options, not playing it as you really should or would play the game, right? But that reminded me a little bit here of this offense that they have. And this is something that people see and they see it is possible to really rack up points and have these incredible comebacks therefore and i was wondering as you were digging through local sports pages researching the perfect pass were there any of those comebacks in particular that really stuck in your head and you said wow again you must have asked a million times how could nobody have picked this up well there are well i'll give you two so this is so how's it kentucky right and they're playing florida Florida is superior. Steve Spurrier is the coach of Florida, and they're ranked number one in the nation. So it's in the first half. Florida has gone ahead 28 to nothing, and everybody thinks that the score is going to be like 77 to 2 or something like that because it's Kentucky against Florida. So it's 28 to nothing, and and how Kentucky team was trapped on their own one-yard line, and it's fourth down. The punter is deep, is in the end zone. It's like five yards deep in the end zone. And so Hal calls a fake punt. And, yeah, it's like not exactly what you would – I mean, Florida's got all these – a line full of future NFL players. So it's a fake punt. (laughs) This guy, some walk-on halfback, ends up taking the snap. And Florida's not waiting for this and lofts this pass. And what ends up happening with the thing is it ends up not being completed, but it hits the guy's hands toward midfield – and what it does, because it's just so cool that they tried this against Florida, and they actually did it except that the guy dropped it, the rest of the game then is Kentucky plays Florida even. And, in fact, they win, they win the rest of the game 28-27. And this was a game that set up Hal's victory against Alabama the next week. The entire stadium in, in Lexington stood and applauded at the end of this game. They were giving like a five-minute standing ovation to this team that had just lost 56-28. to I mean, they lost because they had lost the first half. And I love that one just because it was the spirit of the play that you would do that, that you would fake punt from your own end. Okay, but here's the other one, and I love this one. This is Mike Leach. Leach was great at comebacks. So this is the year 2004. The Red Raiders, Texas Tech, are trailing TCU, very good TCU team. They're trailing 21 to zip with eight minutes to go in the second quarter. Okay, it looks like a total blowout, right? It's so much of a blowout that one of the TCU defensive backs is captured on camera saying they aren't going to score. I mean, you can see his lips moving. Texas Tech won 70 to 35. Five touchdown passes, 441 yards, a spectacular (laughs) aerial offense. I mean, it's one of the greatest comebacks 
ever in the 2006 bowl game, trailing Minnesota 38-7 to in the third quarter. Tech won 44-41. At the time, the greatest comeback in bowl history. So they're able to score within seconds, and that's one of the beauties of the air raid offense. You can score in five seconds if you're that close or longer if it takes you longer to run to the end zone but you can just score and you can put up enormous number of points very quickly and it's one of the things that it was and is able to do and in fact when you watch I don't know I would say these NFL two-minute offenses now they're very much based out of the same kind of way of thinking you mentioned that Mike Leach goes to become a head coach in his own right when coach mommy loses him he likens it to Robert E. Lee. And since your previous book, Rebel Yell, featured Stonewall Jackson, I wanted to ask you to compare that. Robert E. Lee said when Jackson loses an arm, he has lost his left arm, but I have lost my right arm. How do those relationships mirror each other? Because we've talked a lot about what's happening on the field, but you have to have two coaches here who are on the same page as well. Yeah. So Leach is this guy with a kind of crazy resume, never played in college and went to law school and had done well at law school and wanted to be a football coach. So he ends up with Hal. Who knows how these two guys ended up together, but they did at Iowa Wesleyan. And Leach has given the offensive line. And I think Leach is now still to this day not given enough credit for his ability as an offensive line coach. He's a genius at it. And so all those years at Iowa Wesleyan, when you know Leach is experimenting with these crazy big splits, most people, I think, don't understand that one of the hallmarks of this offense is that there's five feet between you know the tackle and the guard. Nobody plays like that, and sometimes six. So Leach had a totally different way of coaching this, and eventually Leach gets the title of offensive coordinator. Hal is always the one who works with the quarterback specifically, but eventually Leach, because he's so smart, he learns the system. He learns it so well that the minute he goes to Oklahoma, he lights up the whole world with it, running exactly what he and Hal had been doing. So it was a very special relationship. The two men are extremely unusual football coaches. They're not like other football coaches at all. They're totally anti-authoritary, anti-institution, anti-system, extremely intelligent, intellectual, uh, both readers. You know, they're not reading football books. You know, they're yeah. reading you know, art books and history books and histories of the Civil War and stuff. And it becomes this really, really close relationship. And by the time we get to Kentucky, it's just unbelievably tight and both coaches share everything and know everything. And it was, I think, devastating to Hal to lose Leach at Kentucky. And in fact, things spun out of control for Hal after Leach left. Hal told me, he just said, I felt like Robert E. Lee losing Stonewall Jackson. That is to say, his critical man, his critical executive officer. I don't think Hal's mishaps at Kentucky and this scandal that took him down, which he was not to blame, but was not related directly to Mike Leach, but I think Hal felt very much bereft of his guy at that point. And and nobody knew on the outside how good Leach was when he was with Hal at Kentucky. Nobody had any idea. And then he goes to Oklahoma and just absolutely astounds the entire world at Oklahoma because this new coach for Oklahoma named Bob Stoops who had program in decline. He figured, what the hell, I'll take a chance on this crazy passing guy from Kentucky, even though he's never called plays before. Yeah, people saw Leach, you know, who he was and how good he was really the second he walked out of Kentucky. Seems a little bit like Bill Belichick right here. He comes from the Jets, which, you know, we love the Jets here, of course, as uh, Giants fans, because they're, they're sort of our little brothers. You don't want anyone picking on them and everybody does sort of thing, especially <laughs> versus the Patriots, right? So he leaves there and he goes and you see, wow, this assistant can be a great coach. And it's hard. It's hard to make those transitions. Uh, Rutgers 
famously Greg Schiano or infamously left and went and goes and tries to coach the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And of course that doesn't work out. Now he's being an assistant at Ohio State. So this is the kind of thing. It's, it's a tough business. You write in the perfect pass that the difference between being loved and being run out of town is the difference between seven and five and five and six. So I wonder, you talked about meeting how mommy you talk in the book about how he's considered a tragic figure in some places because of this scandal that occurs on his watch, the guilt by association there with the Kentucky Wildcats, having met the man, having researched all of this. What's his legacy and how does he feel today watching this game? Um, Hal, Hal is really still the same guy he always was. He's very optimistic. His only really bad choice that he made was he went to New Mexico State, and New Mexico State's a graveyard for coaches, and not only that, they had been slapped with some infractions and some penalties on scholarships. So when he got there, it was a team that was you know, doom-ridden anyway, and it was even worse. So that probably had a lot to do with hurting his career, and he had some health problems in the 2000s. But, you know, he's coaching now at a small school in Jackson, Mississippi. He's kind of back to the small Christian-affiliated school that's very much like Iowa Wesleyan called Bellhaven. And, you know, he's fully aware, you know, that the system that he designed is taking over the rest of the world. I think he's very proud of that. I think he feels on some level that the world would have been different if he had not run into the ethics scandal at Kentucky. But I got to say, he's a happy man. He's doing well. He's coaching football. He likes what he's doing. If other people see him as tragic, and some people do, I mean, not Greek tragic, but, you know, somebody who who had some really bad breaks, Hal just isn't like that as a person. So he's very buoyant. He defines himself as a Christian optimist, and he's got a team this year that he's, you know, he's again building a team. So he's trying it again, and we'll see what happens. But, you know, I think if he were, you know, 38 years old, it would be different. He's, I guess, 62 or 63 now. You know, I think he's a little bit old to start, really start over again at this point. But he's given credit by, you know, everybody in the business. I mean, the ordinary person out there doesn't really know who Hal is. But, boy, inside football, everybody does. And I think that gratifies him. But, anyway, I think he's the football coach, you know. And he likes it, and he's good at it, and he's still doing it. And, trying to be successful. So I guess that's who, I guess that's what I think Hal is anyway. To illustrate the change that he brought to the game of football, you talked about some stats before. I'll interrupt myself again, though, to say this book is not jammed full of stats. This is a really great train read. If you take the train or subway as I do, that's a great book to read. But the numbers do tell the tale as hard as numbers are when you're listening on the radio. In 1975, NFL teams passed 43% of the time. Today, the figure approaches 70%. The completion rates are also up. The speed of the game is up. The interview is kind of late in the fourth quarter here. So one last wounded duck wobbler I'll throw at you. And that is why did it take obscure coaches at possibly the worst team in America to do this, to perform this reinvention you describe in your subtitle? It's precisely because it was the worst team in America. The first time Hal tried to do these things, he was at Copper's Cove High School in Central Texas, a school that just never won. So, And he was athletic director. He could do anything he wanted to. There was nothing to lose. He goes to Iowa Wesleyan. That's a school that's losing enrollment. They're trying to save themselves, you know, have football help them. Hal could sort of mostly call the shots. There was nothing to lose. He literally could not have done it in places where the stakes were considered to be high. You know, the guy who kind of perfected the run and shoot named Mouse Davis, he was able to operate in the, you know, the high schools, losing high schools in Oregon, you know, and then 
And then he ends up going to Portland State. Again, the whole world media is not watching Portland State. But a lot of it is precisely because there's nothing to lose. He can do what he wants to. So in the, against Harding College, he threw the ball 86 times. <laughs> Nobody had ever done that. It's like before. a game and a half, right? He's playing basically a game and a half. You cannot at Rutgers go throw the ball 86 times. They'll fire you. <laughs> you can't do that. And, you know, you can't even do it at Princeton. You cannot do that. And to throw the ball, so it was like, I think it was 67 or 67 out of 86. It was both NCAA records in, in 1991. That's just completely off the wall. You go for it in every fourth down. You never punt <laughs> yeah. on fourth down. I mean, even here in Texas, Leach could never have done a lot of this, I think, if he had, well, one at Oklahoma, which was desperate and was in bad decline, and he was the offensive coordinator. But at Texas Tech, you know, out of the media spotlight, because Leach would habitually, I remember being at Texas Tech Stadium and watching him go for it on fourth and five from his own 34, and everybody just looks away. You go, you can't, you know, man. You can't do that. <laughs> a lot of it's a little crazy, and, and I think part of it's just if you go to Alabama, they won't let you do it. You go to Michigan, they won't let you do that. Go to Iowa Wesleyan, nobody cares. Well, they do care, but they don't care enough. So, <laughs> In fact, the reason that they run him out of there is because he has too much success. They don't want these big games. It's, it's just amazing watching the life of somebody who's such an innovator, obviously cares so much, who gives these players so much, and yet trying to find a home. And I think that's something everyone can relate to. Yeah, and, and the tragedy, I guess, if there is one, that you know, that he gets to Kentucky, which, I mean, he's going to have a really great career there. I mean, he's doing well in the the SEC, and unfortunately, the upward part of the graph ends there. Yeah, on some level, it's just a story of a great coach. And the way he did it, I would argue, is the way that I can't think of anybody who ever did it the way he did it before. Well, Sam Gwynn, author of The Perfect Pass, if folks want to meet Hal Mummy and Mike Leach, who did do it like no one had done it before, I hope that they will pick up your book. Thank you for suiting up with me today. Thank you for indulging my occasional football puns, which I'm fond of. Thank you for introducing us to these two geniuses of American football, men whose legacy we're enjoying every time we cheer a helmet catch or immaculate reception, something that all of the folks now who love fantasy football and entire industry has been built around the idea of these stats that they gave us. Best of luck with the book. Martin, thank you so much. It was a great interview. It's been great talking to you. Again, the book is The Perfect Pass, American Genius and the Reinvention of Football. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even bookmark the Amazon banner on our homepage for all your online purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make and it doesn't cost you anything extra. My sincere thanks to Sam Gwynn for joining me and for introducing us to two football coaches whose legacy we're cheering every time somebody pulls in one of those long passes. That spelling again is G-W-Y-N-N-E, and you can find him online at scgwynn.com or by following scgwynn on Twitter. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or facebook.com slash history author. Well, it's time to get ready for the football season to start, so that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us Monday for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, 
please take a minute to leave us a review. I appreciate listener Monroe Rush for doing just that and leaving us five stars with a review that says we breathe new life into history. That's the goal, Monroe. Thanks for noticing. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks for time traveling with us today with a review that said we breathe new life into history. That's the goal, Monroe. Thanks for noticing. You gave us a little air of good feelings there. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And whether you're rooting for the Rutgers University Scarlet Knights on Saturdays and the New York Football Giants on Sundays or some other school or club, I hope your team has a great football season. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.